Hey everyone, I'm Robbie Clark, and you're listening to The Cash. Welcome back to The Cash. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Jacob Ross on the topic of belonging in the workplace. This is a part one of a two-part series. Hey Jake, thanks for joining me on The Cash. How are you doing? My pleasure. I'm, I'm good. I'm really happy to be here. Cool. Um, we're glad to have you here. I'm glad to have you here. We, the multiple me. Uh, Royal we. So you recently worked on a thesis. Uh, well, you recently graduated from the University of California, Berkeley. Go Bears. You worked on a thesis on belonging in the workplace. Uh, I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So my thesis work um, is based on a body of work that I'm, I've been developing for a couple of years around creating a culture of belonging in the workplace. Uh, and it's actually going to be the basis for an, a book that I have upcoming. Um, in the fall is when the manuscripts do. So hopefully it should be out by this time next year called Building Belonging and it's an organizational culture guide. And so the research takes this idea of creating a culture in which people feel like they are a part of something bigger than themselves in the workplace. Um, and that they feel like they're part of a community, that they feel connected and that they feel embedded. And as a result of that, it increases people's likelihood to stay. It increases, elevates people's mood and generally speaking is better for people's health. And so when people are in better health and elevated mood, they are a greater asset to an organization. And so in the long run, the, the idea is that when people feel that they belong, they are happier. When people are happier and they are healthier, when people are happier and healthier, they are more of an asset to a company, organization, what have you. Before we go into your book, can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by asset? How is it that the individual employee becomes more of an asset when they're happier? So here's, here's where the whole, the whole conversation comes from. Having watched my, my father and mother do this, this type of work for my entire life, I've seen that... A, what kind of work is that? Organizational development consulting um, and, and leadership training and, and things you of that. You come from a whole lineage of leaders and leadership experts. You're like the council, the high council to, uh, to the kings and queens. Exactly. And not only that, but um, <clears throat> this, excuse me, this project also has me aligning very much with my father. Um, he and I are co-authoring the book together, and it's coming as a follow-up to his uh, previous book, Our Search for Belonging. Um, so it's it's you all with you. written a book together. No, no, he wrote a book already. Okay, he wrote a book already. He wrote a book already, and then we're writing this next book together. Okay, is this next book a sequel? To somewhat, it's 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 a sequel, but it's more. Yeah, it, it's a sequel, but it has more me in it. So okay, we like you. Yeah, we're, we'll we're a little bit more, Jake. I'm all right. Okay, cool. So anyhow, um, I've I've seen my parents do this work for, you know, 25 years, and it's really been impactful to see the degree to which it works. Um, not from an organizational standpoint, or, or rather, it, it works from an organizational standpoint, but the impact doesn't come from the impact to me doesn't come from that. The impact to me comes from seeing the level that it works on a personal level, the way that people feel more included and feel more acknowledged. Now, my parents' um, work started, started and still 
to a certain degree is largely contained within being diversity and inclusion consultants. Um, and so a lot of their work is around DNI stuff, but it, it speaks to this larger conversation of belonging, that people who feel like they don't belong are inclined to have a less positive experience. And so this idea of building belonging, of creating a space in which everybody belongs is a way to improve people's lives. Um, and the reason why I've taken the route that I have is because I have seen over 25 years the degree to which people's lives can be impacted positively by changes to structure in their workplace or changes to um, just generally the way that a workplace operates. I've seen, I've seen how much influence that can have. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so the reason why I say it makes somebody a better asset is because that's the angle that I'm, I'm playing because that's the way to get the attention. You know, you and I have had a lot of conversations around capitalist ideology and how much of our society is driven by a, a concept. Pardon me. Um, much of our- Better out than in. That's what Shrek said. <laughs> our wisest philosopher. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation around the, the capitalist ideology and how, how a lot of people see the world with big dollar signs in their eyes. And I don't like that per se. It, it doesn't make me happy. I don't find that fulfilling. It's never been the kind of thing that's, that motivates me. It's not the values that I was brought up with. But what I've seen is that a lot of the times the people who are in power, a lot of the times the people who are making the decisions, the ones who are swinging the big clubs, they are dollar-minded. And that's not to make them wrong for it. You know, a lot of the times when you're running an organization, you have to consider costs. You have to consider... Business. You have to consider business. It's just what's true. It's not what's interesting to me. It's not what I like about the way that the world operates, but it's just what's so at certain levels of organization. And so by taking the conversations of belonging and purpose and community and really making it so that there's a way to enrich people's lives as a result of certain paradigm shifts within the workplace, there's an opportunity to make people feel more valued and as a result of that, make them more productive, more committed, more willing to stay members of an organization. And so when I say asset, what I mean is that <clears throat> as somebody who feels like they belong, there's less likelihood that somebody is going to be interested in leaving an organization. There's more likelihood that they're going to be happier. There's more likelihood that they're going to be healthier because of both of those factors. And when somebody is happy and healthy and feels like they belong, they're going to be more productive. They're going to be more invested. And they're just, they're going to be somebody who is an asset to, the, to an organization, who is somebody who, who drives the mission of an organization forward. And does that imply financial productivity? To a certain degree, yes. And their lives are better because of it. So that's sort of, that's, that's the angle that I'm taking. Kind of like a, I, how do I say this without saying double-edged sword? Because it's not negative, not getting cut, but I feel like you're, I guess feeding two birds with one seed. Um, you're you're give, you're bringing profit-minded people or profit-minded business um, a human aspect that and selling it as if this will also bring more profit uh, uh, asset and productivity to the workplace itself. Right. Um, 
and it yeah. said when you you mentioned this earlier you said the keyword that i was thinking every time i heard you mention belonging i kept thinking community um and you had mentioned that in passing in your conversation i was wondering if you could also touch on like what is belonging and like at its core and maybe tie that to the idea of community because that they're kind of integral <clears throat> yeah absolutely um belonging of course is in the eye of the beholder to a certain extent you know how you feel like you belong how you feel like you identify within a group is is sort of an individual perception with that being said um there's a really interesting body of work by alexander haslam and his associates he's a professor out of i want to say queensland um i believe australia and uh it, it has to do with social identification and the degree to which somebody identifies with the people around them. Um, but one of, the, one of the facets of the work that I was doing in my thesis has to do with perception of belonging and how when we perceive ourselves to be a part of something bigger, then we can make it so. Um, take, for example, you know, myself. If, if I, in a workplace as a Jewish person, identify with the Jewish people that I work with, then I've sort of found that, that community or that, that space to which I belong. However, if I, as a person in a workplace, identify as a member of this workplace, or if I identify as a member of this team, or if I really allow myself to drop in with, with some social identification to the space around me, then I create more of a possibility of, of having people to connect with, you know? If I'm, if I'm identifying at a more core level with something that's isolative, which, you know, the, the truth of the matter is being, being a Jewish person is, is a, a small, I, I'm sorry, Jewish people are a small body of the population and it's not something that you can just sort of waltz into. And so there's some sort of barriers to entry to a Jewish community. And so if my identity as a Jewish person is tied up as the way that I choose to identify and the way that I, I choose to form my community, then I'm going to have people that I can bond with. I'm going to feel like I have a sense of community, but it's gonna be very isolated and very selective. As opposed to if I'm somebody whose identity is a member of the human race or a member of this organization or a member of this team or something of that sort, then there's a lot more space to build community with inclusion. And the idea is not finding who you belong to. The idea is finding how to belong wherever you are. You know, Brene Brown says that, that the only way to belong in the world is to truly belong to ourselves. So Jake, you, uh, you say in your thesis that the point is to examine the nature of belonging in the modern workplace and how it influences subjective well-being. Uh, I was hoping that you could go more into what you find the nature of belonging to be and how that influences well-being. So I, I evaluated belonging as one of three, was it three or two um, questions? And it was asking sort of, do you feel connected, <clears throat> excuse me, do you feel connected to the people that you work with? Um, do you feel like you 
are a part of the workplace community and, you know, do you feel like you belong? Um, and then I also use the question, um, oh goodness, to what degree do you feel like you are in a minority group um, in your workplace? Uh, and, you know, I, I deliberately left it very ambiguous of racial, ethnic, um, religious, et cetera. And so I was interested to look at how people feel they belong, you know? Do, they, do you feel like you fit in? Do you feel like you're a part of something bigger? Do you feel like you're, you're a member of a community? Because that's the metric that I'm really interested in is what is people's perceptions? You know, you could be, it's, it's the age old adage of being alone in a room full of people. You know, you can be a member of a community, of a homogenous community and not feel like you belong. And you can be a member of a community that's completely diverse and full of people of all kinds and you can feel like you're at home there. And so the conversation isn't about creating some sort of objective, concrete form of belonging. The conversation is about how belonging is completely subjective and in order to create more of a sense of belonging in order to create more of an experience of being a part of something bigger one needs to be addressed at the personal level one needs to be have have their needs examined and, and looked at and so you know belonging is really is really what you make of it but it's a matter of feeling like it's feeling like a part of something bigger than oneself how does one then nurture a sense of belonging in themselves as you reference like the adage of you could be alone in a room full of a thousand people how how is it then that someone that someone could even get to that point where they feel isolated when they are around many or where they could be alone and they actually feel like they're a part of a greater community how, how does that work out i think that the the way that one can really drop into that is to look at how how your values align to to whatever community you choose to whatever way of being you choose you know how how do i feel that i belong to myself how do i feel that who i am is reflective of who i want to be for the world um how how do i feel as a member of the human race what's what's the what's the the value alignment that I have with, with being hum a human being, you know? And, and so I think that it's a tough question. It's, it's definitely not the easiest thing to. Well, how about, let's not think about everybody else then. How is it that you have found your sense of belonging um, either within your community or within yourself? Are you alone in a room full of a lot of people or are you with many all by yourself? Well, I think that one great way of looking at that is, is looking at Berkeley students. You know, we're both students, at, or well, I'm a former student now, but we were both students at UC Berkeley. That's bear. Go Bears. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, there's... There's a lot of different ways that people identify at UC Berkeley. There's, I mean, just for my own self and communities that I, I connect with, there's the Jewish community based out of, of Hillel. 
And then there's our community, you know, the people that you and I are friends with, who we spend our time with. There's a community of people who, who LARP, live action role play um, on, on Memorial Glade. And then there's the Quidditch team. And then there's acapella groups. And then there's sports teams. And there's, there's all manner of, of sub communities within UC Berkeley. And so it's sort of like there's this interesting thing where, <coughs> pardon me, there's this interesting thing where you can have a, a, a number of identities, right? You can have any, any different ways of, of assessing who you are, who I am, who I, I am in the, in the larger scope of UC Berkeley. But if you're walking down Sproul Plaza and you shout, go bears, you're going to get a bunch of people who shout back at you, go bears. And that's because there's a core identity that we all share, which is as UC Berkeley students. And I think that that's a good metaphor for the rest of the, the conversation, which is that we can choose to identify in a lot of different ways, but the fact is that if we find commonalities between ourselves and others instead of finding differences, then there's, there's a way that we can belong there. There's a, a lot of conversation around that in Alcoholics Anonymous, actually, um, around how it's really important to identify with the mission and the, the primary purpose, they say, um, which is to help uh, to stay sober and help another alcoholic stay sober. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of people of various different faiths, of various different backgrounds, particularly of various different political ideologies. Uh, and I say particularly just because we live in a very divisive time politically right now, um, who come together with the sole intention of staying sober, being sober, getting sober, you know, whatever stage one is at. And those ideologies, those different identities get thrown out the window because the only thing that's important is to survive in, in the case of AA. Um, but, you know, there's, there's many other ways that, that one can find that same sort of sense of belonging and being a part of. It's just a matter of the commonalities and, and purpose that one aligns with, which is why I'm so interested in, in with the workplace. Because if you're somebody who's doing a lot of really purpose-driven work, then all of a sudden, you, everybody that you work with shares a purpose, you know? It, that's why I was so fascinated by the by the research in education, um, and that's why a lot of the people in my paper were in the education industry because a lot of education is very purpose driven work. Hmm. So, a purpose in like they did that they're living for something more altruistic than themselves. They're educating the future of mankind rather than just living selfishly. So, I think yes. And that's the, that's the part of it that I was the most fascinated by. I don't think that that's necessary in order to feel a sense of belonging. I think that if your purpose is to create the next great supercomputer, you know, if that's what you see as your calling and you, you want to be the person who drives forth this project or, you know, you want to be the person who creates a new AI, that's purpose, you know, and that's, that's purpose-driven that's a purpose-driven life. It's purpose-driven work. And so that there's... To be living for something. <clears throat> yeah, to be living for something, I think, gives a lot of access to connecting with the people that one's around. 
What about those who are living just for themselves? Like just for the AI or like, you know, or like, cause I feel like at some point, maybe, maybe I'm projecting. I feel like at some point if we're just living for, let's say to make AI or something like that material, then does our life really have purpose? You know, like we're just creating this machine. I, I don't know. I feel like I want to say purpose is something more beyond just the self or some like just trying to get by to survive. What am I doing every day? You know, you know it, that's not really for me to say. I guess for it's not for me say. either. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's not it's not really for us to say to determine what what is or is not purpose driven. What I will say is that you know, being solely alive for the sake of one's work sounds lonely. Mm. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like a happy existence to me. Um, and I'm sure that there are people who are who are very happy and who do things that bring them lots of meaning you know i'm sure that there are people whose entire lives are are driven by capital you know stockbrokers and um whatever else um whose you know whose whose lives are driven uh, are driven by make money and you know even people like that can still have a sense of purpose if even if their purpose is that then it can also be you know make money to support a family make money to have enough money to give to charity or or something of the sort you know it's it's not really ours to say whether something is is purposeful or not but what i do know is that it sounds very lonely mm-hmm. um it, it it sounds it sounds really sad to me to be only driven by personal motivation you know it, it doesn't align with my values um and i'm sure that people are not wrong for it by any measure well i think that kind of existence is kind of counterproductive to building a sense of belonging and a sense of community i think um, you referenced uh, a woman named a professor i believe she would used to teach at uc davis uh her name was sarah hardy mm-hmm. um you had paraphrased her um, saying something along the lines that we are human together, that we evolve together, that a child cannot take care of um, itself. I, I believe from what I've heard and through my own life is that like the human is the only mammal that can't, that has like no like function alley. Like it will completely not be able to survive right out of the womb. Other animals can like, other mammals can like at least run and there are obviously maybe some outliers to what I'm saying, um, but you know what I'm trying to talk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as <clears throat> excuse me, as hu- as human beings, we're gifted with this extraordinary thing called the prefrontal cortex. As a result, our heads are freaking huge, and you know the. I have a five. I have a five finger forehead. What is this? Me too. Well, for me, <laughs> look at us. We're brothers. For me, it's male pattern baldness. Thanks, mom. But, you know, anyway. Um, so, you know, we have this, this need for our heads to develop to a certain larger size as, as children, uh, or as, as infants, rather. And as a result of that, women have to give birth before the baby is fully developed because otherwise it would kill them. It would be it would be fatal giving birth if the human child was able to 
grow to the size that it needs to be in order to be self-sustainable. And so it's this trade-off that we have, that we have the prefrontal cortex, which gives us awareness. Liz asks, sorry, what about twins? How are women able to give birth to twins and not a baby with a really big head? Twins come out one at a time. Ah, uh, okay, that makes sense. It's yeah. not the load they're carrying. She can carry the child to term. Right. The delivery itself is the issue. Correct. Okay, sorry, just want to clarify that. That's, that's okay. Women's, women's hips would have to be very, very, very wide uh, in order to give birth to a child whose head had fully developed to the point that it could sustain um, I mean, even for a child to be able to lift its own neck, um, children often can't do that. Um, or when they're born, they can't. Uh, and so we, we have this, this propensity towards hyper-vulnerable offspring. Uh, we, we have hyper-vulnerable offspring, which I believe is a term that was coined by Professor Hardy. Um, I'm not certain on that, though. I'll have to double check. But we, we give birth to hyper-vulnerable offspring. What that means is that we require community. And in the evolutionary environment, you look at the hunter-gatherer society. You have hunters go out and hunt for, for food, hunt for, for meat, for proteinous food. Then you have gatherers gather vegetables, gather roots, gather whatever needs to be gathered, wood for fires, etc. And then you have the mothers. And, and the whole community centers around protecting each other so that they can protect and collectively rear the children. Um, you know, in the evolutionary environment, the community is, is incredibly essential because we can't survive without community. Even, even individual families can't survive without community um, or couldn't rather survive without community in the evolutionary environment. And so we've developed this inherent sense of needing to belong to something for our survival. And so, you know, as we've moved into a more individualistic society in which people can survive on their own, people can thrive on their own, um, we, we see some fracturing of that, but it's really interesting. And, you know, as, as is very evident by the fact that we're doing this on Zoom, things are kind of crazy right now. And we're at a point in our society, in our civilization, where we can't have community as usual, we can't meet our needs as usual, and all of a sudden, our, our needs for, for surviving and thriving are put at threat, and we have to find new ways to enforce community, we have to find new ways to be a part of something bigger, we have to find new ways to belong. Well, on that note, I want to say, I think that, from my perspective, there's the sense that the community has actually been denied that to think that because we're individuals or we're individualistic that we are able to survive on our own means i think is actually being negated if we look at how now during corona crisis i can i my ability to go buy certain products uh, at certain times are threatened meaning that my livelihood my lifestyle is threatened um, which really puts in perspective that i'm actually more dependent and not as individual as i once thought I feel like an individual would be one who was able to live on his own land with his, you know, by himself to be isolated. But we're, we're not really living in that kind of um, society where we, we have almost blinded ourselves maybe to, to the idea that we're all more interconnected than we really think we are. And that, you know, and maybe this is actually one of the benefits of going through a crisis like Corona is that we are 
isolating ourselves and becoming less communal in the sense that we're actually having physical uh, um, within certain physical proximity to each other, but we're isolating ourselves for the greater community at large, like our elderly and those who are immunocompromised, we are separating ourselves so that way they are healthier. Thanks for listening to The Cash. If you'd like to be interviewed and aired on a future episode, email me, Robbie Clark, at thecash at gmail.com. The Cash is spelled T-H-E-C-A-S-Z-H. If you'd like to listen to a live stream, you can do so on KCPKLP, a radio station affiliate of Pacifica Network.